Chapter 14 Life in the Clearings versus the Bush by Susanna Moody. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Toronto Fiction, however wild and fanciful, is but the copy memory draws from truth. Tis not in human genius to create. The mind is but a mirror that reflects realities that are, or the dim shadows, left by the past on its placid surface, recalled again to life. The glow of early day was brightening in the east, as the steamer approached Toronto. We rounded the point of the interminable, flat, swampy island that stretches for several miles in front of the city, and which is thinly covered with scrubby-looking trees. The land lies so level with the water that it has the appearance of being half-submerged, and from a distance you only see the tops of the trees. I have been informed that the name of Toronto has been derived from this circumstance, which in Indian literally means trees in the water. If the island rather takes from than adds to the beauty of the place, it is not without great practical advantages. As to it, the city is mainly indebted for its sheltered and very commodious harbour. After entering the harbour, Toronto presents a long line of frontage, covered with handsome buildings to the eye. A grey mist still hovered over its many domes and spires, but the new university and the lunatic asylum stood out in bold relief as they caught the broad red gleam of the coming day. It was my first visit to the metropolitan city of the upper province, and with no small degree of interest I examined its general aspect as we approached the wharf. It does not present an imposing appearance from the water as Kingston, but it strikes you instantly as a place of far greater magnitude and importance. There is a fresh, growing, healthy vitality about this place, that cannot fail to impress a stranger very forcibly the first time he enters it. He feels instinctively that he sees before him the strong, throbbing heart of this gigantic young country, and that every powerful vibration from this ever-increasing centre of wealth and civilization infuses life and vigour through the whole length and breadth of the province. Toronto exceeded the most sanguine expectations that I had formed of it at a distance, and enabled me to realize distinctly the rising greatness and rapid improvement of the colony. It is only here that you can form any just estimate of what she is now, and what at no very distant period she must be. The country, for some miles round the city, appears to the eye as flat as a floor. The rise, though very gradual, is, I am told, considerable and the land is sufficiently elevated above the lake to escape the disagreeable character of being low and swampy. Anything in the shape of a slope or hill is not distinguishable in the present area on which Toronto is built, but the streets are wide and clean, and contain many handsome public buildings, and the beautiful trees which everywhere abound in the neat, well-kept gardens that surround the dwellings of the wealthier inhabitants with the broad, bright, blue inland sea that forms the foreground to the picture, give to it such a lively and agreeable character, that it takes from it all appearance of tameness and monotony. The wharfs, with which our first practical acquaintance with the city commenced, are very narrow and incommodious. They are built on piles of wood, running out to some distance in the water, and covered with rotten, 
black-looking boards. As far as comfort and convenience go, they are far inferior to those of Coburg and Kingston, or even to those of our dear little City of the Bay, as Belleville has not inaptly been christened by the strange madcap calling himself the great orator of the West. It is devoutly to be hoped that a few years will sweep all these decayed old wharfs into the Ontario, and that more substantial ones built of stone will be erected in their place. Rome, however, was not built in a day, and the magic growth of this city, of the West, is almost as miraculous as that of Jonah's celebrated gourd. The steamboat had scarcely been secured to her wharf before we were surrounded by a host of cabmen, who rushed on board, fighting and squabbling with each other in order to secure the first chance of passengers and their luggage. The hubbub in front of the ladies' cabin grew to a perfect uproar, and, as most of the gentlemen were still in the arms of Morpheus, these noisy Mercuries had it all their own way, swearing and shouting at the top of their voices, in a manner that rivalled civilized Europe. I was perfectly astonished at their volubility, and the pertinacity of their attentions, which were poured forth in true Malaysian fashion, an odd mixture of blarney, self-interest, and audacity. At Kingston these gentry are far more civil and less importunate, and we witnessed none of this disgraceful annoyance at any other port on the lake. One of these paddies, in his hurry to secure the persons and luggage of several ladies, who had been my fellow-passengers in the cabin, nearly backed his crazy old vehicle over the unguarded wooden wharf into the lake. We got safely stowed at last into one of these machines, which, internally, are not destitute of either comfort or convenience, and driving through some of the principal avenues of the city, were safely deposited at the door of a dear friend who had come on board to conduct us to his hospitable home, and here I found the rest and quiet so much needed by an invalid after a long and fatiguing journey. It was some days before I was sufficiently recovered to visit any of the lions of the place. With a minute description of these I shall not trouble my readers. My book is written more with a view to convey general impressions than to delineate separate features to while away the languid heat of a summer day, or the dreary dullness of a wet one. The intending emigrant, who is anxious for commercial calculations and statistical details, will find all that he can require on his head in Scobie's Almanac, and Smith's Past, Present, and Future of Canada, works written expressly for that purpose. Women make good use of their eyes and ears, and paint scenes that amuse or strike their fancy with tolerable accuracy but it requires the strongest thinking heart of man to anticipate events and trace certain results from particular causes. Women are out of their element when they attempt to speculate upon these abstruse matters. They are apt to incline too strongly to their own opinions and jump at conclusions which are either false or unsatisfactory. My first visit was to King Street, which may be considered as the Regent Street of Toronto. It is the great central avenue of commerce, and contains many fine buildings and handsome capacious stores, while a number of new ones are in a state of progress. This fine, broad, airy thoroughfare would be an ornament to any town or city, and the bustle and traffic through it give to strangers a tolerably just idea of the wealth and industry of the community. All the streets terminate at the water's edge, but Front Street, which runs parallel with it, 
and may be termed the West End of Toronto, for most of the wealthy residents have handsome houses and gardens in this street, which is open through the whole length of it to the lake. The railroad is upon the edge of the water along this natural terrace. The situation is uncommonly lively, as it commands a fine view of the harbour, and vessels and steamboats are passing to and fro continually. The St. Lawrence Market, which is near the bottom of King Street, is a handsome, commodious building, and capitably supplied with all the creature comforts. Fish, flesh, and fowl, besides abundance of excellent fruits and vegetables, which can be procured at very reasonable prices. The town hall is over the market-place, and I am told, for I did not visit it, that it is a noble room, capable of accommodating a large number of people with ease and comfort. Toronto is very rich in handsome churches, which form one of its chief attractions. I was greatly struck with the elegant spire of Knox's church, which is perhaps the most graceful in the city. The body of the church, however, seems rather too short and out of proportion for the tall, slender tower, which would have appeared to much greater advantage attached to a building double the length. Nothing attracted my attention or interested me more than the handsome, well-supplied bookstores. Those of Armoire, Scoby, and Maclean are equal to many in London in appearance, and far superior to those that were to be found in Norwich and Ipswich thirty years ago. This speaks well for the mental improvement of Canada, and it is proof that people have more leisure for acquiring book-lore and more money for the purchase of books than they had some years ago. The piracies of the Americans have realized the old proverb that tis an ill-will that blows nobody any good. Incalculable are the benefits that Canada derives from her cheap reprints of all the European standard works, which, on good paper and in handsome bindings, can be bought at a quarter the price of the English editions. This circumstance must always make the Canadas a bad market for English publications. Most of these, it is true, can be procured by wealthy individuals at the bookstores mentioned above, but the American reprints of the same works abound a hundredfold. Novels form the most attractive species of reading here for the young, and the best of these, in pamphlet form, may be procured for from twenty-five to fifty cents, and here I must claim the privilege of speaking a few words in defence of both novel-readers and novel-writers, in spite of the horror which I fancy I see depicted on many a grave countenance. There are many good and conscientious persons who regard novels and novel-writers with devout horror, who condemn their works, however moral in their tendency, as unfit for the perusal of responsible and intelligent creatures, who will not admit into their libraries any books but such as treat of religious, historical, or scientific subjects, imagining, and we think very erroneously, that all works of fiction have a demoralizing effect, and tend to weaken the judgment, and enervate the mind. We will, however, allow that there is both truth and sound sense in some of these objections, that if a young person's reading is entirely confined to this class of literature, and that of an inferior sort, a great deal of harm may be the result, as many of these works are apt to convey to them false and exaggerated pictures of life. Such a course of reading would produce the same effect upon the mind as a constant diet of sweetmeats would upon the stomach. 
it would destroy the digestion and induce a loathing for more wholesome food. Still, the mind requires recreation as well as the body, and cannot always be engaged upon serious studies without injury to the brain and the disarrangement of some of the most important organs of the body. Now, we think it could be satisfactorily proved, in spite of the stern crusade perpetually waged against the works of fiction by a large portion of well-meaning people, that much good has been done in the world through their instrumentality. Most novels and romances, particularly those of the modern school, are founded upon real incidents, and, like the best heads in the artist's picture, the characters are drawn from life, and the closer the drawing or story approximates to nature, the more interesting and popular it will become. Though a vast number of these are daily pouring from the British and American press, it is only those of a very high class that are generally read, and become as familiar as household words. The tastes of individuals differ widely on articles of dress, food, and amusement, but there is a wonderful affinity in the minds of men as regards works of literature. A book that appeals strongly to the passions, if true to nature, will strike nearly all alike, and obtain a world-wide popularity, while the mere fiction sinks back into obscurity, is once read and forgotten. The works of Smollett and Fielding were admirable pictures of society as it existed in their day, but we live in a more refined age, and few young people would feel any pleasure in the coarse pictures exhibited in those once celebrated works. The novels of Richardson, recommended by grave divines from the pulpit as perfect models of purity and virtue, would now be cast aside with indifference and disgust. They were considered quite the reverse in the age he wrote, and he was regarded as one of the great reformers of the vices of his time. We may therefore conclude that, although repugnant to our tastes and feelings, they were the means of effecting much good in a gross and licentious age. In the writings of our great modern novelists, virtue is never debased, nor vice exalted, but there is a constant endeavour to impress upon the mind of the reader the true wisdom of the one and the folly of the other, and where the author fails to create an interest in the fate of his hero or heroine, it is not because they are bad or immoral characters, like Lovelace in Clarissa Harlowe and Lord B. in Pamela, but that, like Sir Charles Grandison, they are too good for reality, and their very faultlessness renders them, like the said Sir Charles, affected and unnatural. Where high moral excellence is represented as struggling with the faults and follies common to humanity, sometimes yielding to temptation and reaping the bitter fruits, and at other times successfully resisting the allurements of vice, all our sympathies are engaged in the contest. It becomes our own, and we could follow the hero through all his trials, weep over his fall, or triumph in his success." Children who possess an unsophisticated judgment in these matters seldom feel much interest in the model boy of a moral story, not from any innate depravity of mind which leads them to prefer vice to virtue, for no such preference can exist in the human breast, no, not even in the perverted hearts of the worst of men, but because the model boy is like no other boy of their acquaintance. He does not resemble them, for he is a piece of unnatural perfection." 
He neither fights, nor cries, nor wishes to play when he ought to be busy with his lessons. He lectures like a parson, and talks like a book. His face is never dirty. He never tears his clothes, nor soils his hands with making dirt pies, or puddling in the mud. His hair is always smooth, his face always wears a smile, and he was never known to sulk, or say, I won't. The boy is a perfect stranger. They can't recognize his likeness, or follow his example. And why? Because both are unnatural caricatures. But be sure that if the naughty boy of the said tale creates the most interest for his fate in the mind of the youthful reader, it is simply because he is drawn with more truthfulness than the character that was intended for his counterpart. The language of passion is always eloquent, and the bad boy is delineated true to his bad nature, and is made to speak and act naturally, which never fails to awaken a touch of sympathy in beings equally prone to err. I again repeat that few minds, if any, exist that can find beauty in deformity, or ought to admire in the hideousness of vice. There are many persons in the world who cannot bear to receive instruction when conveyed to them in a serious form, who shrink with loathing from the cant with which too many religious novels are loaded, and who yet might be induced to listen to precepts of religion and morality, when arranged in a more amusing and attractive garb, and enforced by characters who speak and feel like themselves, and share in all things a common humanity. Some of our admirable modern works of fiction, or rather truths disguised, in order to make them more palatable to the generality of readers, have done more to ameliorate the sorrows of mankind, by drawing the attention of the public to the wants and woes of the lower classes, than all the charity sermons that have been delivered from the pulpit. Yes, the despised and reprobated novelist, by daring to unveil the crimes and miseries of neglected and ignorant men, and to point out the abuses which have produced, and are still producing, the same dreadful results, are missionaries in the cause of humanity, the real friends and benefactors of mankind. The selfish worldling may denounce as infamous and immoral the heart-rending pictures of human suffering and degradation that the writings of Dickens and Sue have presented to their gaze, and declare that they are unfit to meet the eyes of the virtuous and refined, that no good can arise from the publication of such revolting details, and that to be ignorant of the existence of such horrors is in itself a species of virtue. Daughter of wealth, daintily nurtured, and nicely educated, is blindness nature? Does your superiority over these fallen creatures spring from any innate principles in your own breast, which renders you more worthy of the admiration and esteem of your fellow-creatures? Are you not indebted to the circumstances in which you are placed, and to that moral education for every virtue that you possess? You can feel no pity for the murderer, the thief, the prostitute, such people may aptly be termed the wild beasts of society, and, like wild beasts, should be hunted down and killed, in order to secure the peace and comfort of the rest. Well, the law has been doing this for many ages, and yet the wild beasts still exist and prey upon their neighbours. 
and such will still continue to be the case until Christianity, following the example of her blessed founder, goes forth into the wilderness of life on her errand of mercy, not to condemn, but to seek and to save that which is lost. The conventional rules of society have formed a hedge about you, which renders any flagrant breach of morality very difficult, in some cases almost impossible. From infancy the dread commandments have been sounding in your ears, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. And the awful mandate has been strengthened by the admonitions of pious parents and good ministers, all anxious for your eternal welfare. You may well be honest, for all your wants have been supplied, and you have yet to learn that where no temptation exists, virtue itself becomes a negative quality. You do not covet the goods which others possess. You have never looked down with confusion of face and heartfelt bitterness on the dirty rags that scarcely suffice to conceal the emaciation of your wasted limbs. You have never felt hunger gnawing at your vitals or shuddered at the cries of famishing children sobbing around your knees for bread. You have dainties to satiety every day and know nothing of the agonies of sacrificing your virtue for the sake of a meal. If you are cold, you have a good fire to warm you, a comfortable mansion to protect you from the inclemency of the weather, and garments suitable to every season of the year. How can you be expected to sympathize with the ragged, houseless children of want and infamy? You cannot bear to have these sad realities presented to your notice. It shocks your nerves. You cannot bring yourself to admit that these outcasts of society are composed of the same clay. And you blame the authors who have dared to run a tilt against your prejudices, and have not only attested the unwelcome fact, but have pointed out the causes which lead to the hopeless degradation and depravity of these miserable fellow-creatures. You cannot read the works of these humane men, because they bid you to step with them, into these dirty abodes of guilt and wretchedness, and see what crime really is, and all the horrors that ignorance and poverty, and a want of self-respect, never fail to bring about. You cannot enter into these abodes of your neglected and starving brothers and sisters, these forlorn scions of a common stock, and view their cold hearts and unfurnished tables, their beds of straw and tattered garments, without defilement or witness their days of unremitting toil, and nights of unrest, and worse, far worse, to behold the evil passions and crimes which spring from a state of ignorance, producing a moral darkness that can be felt. You are insulted and offended at being seen in such bad company, and cannot for a moment imagine that a change in your relative positions might have rendered you no wiser or better than them. But let me ask you candidly, has not the terrible scene produced some effect? Can you forget its existence, its shocking reality? The lesson it teaches may be distasteful, but you cannot shake off a knowledge of its melancholy facts. The voice of conscience speaks audibly to your heart. That still, small voice, that awful record of himself that God has placed in every breast, and woe be to you or any one when it ceases to be heard. 
tells you that you cannot, without violating the divine mandate, love thy neighbor as thyself, leave these miserable creatures to languish and die, without making one effort to aid in rescuing them from their melancholy fate. But what can I do? I hear you indignantly exclaim. Much, oh, how much, you have wealth, a small part of which cannot be better bestowed than in educating these poor creatures, in teaching them to recognize those divine laws which they have broken, in leading them step by step into those paths of piety and peace they have never known. Ignorance has been the most powerful agent in corrupting these perishing criminals. Give them healthful employment, the means of emigrating to countries where labor is amply remunerated, and will secure for them comfort, independence, and self-respect. In Canada, these victims of overpopulation prove beneficial members of society, while with you they are regarded as a blight and a curse. Numbers of this class are yearly cast upon these shores, yet the crimes which are commonly committed by their instrumentality in Britain very rarely occur with us. We could not sleep with unfastened doors and windows near populous towns if the change in their condition did not bring about a great moral change in the character of these poor emigrants. They readily gain employment, their toils are amply remunerated, and they cease to commit crime to procure a precarious existence. In the very worst of these people some good exists. A few seeds remain of divine planting which, if fostered and judiciously trained, might yet bear fruit for heaven. The authors, whose works you call disgusting and immoral, point out this, and afford you the most pathetic illustrations of its truth. You need not fear contamination from the vices which they portray. Their depravity is of too black a hue to have the least attraction, even to beings only removed a few degrees from the same guilt. Vice may have their admirers when she glitters in gold and scarlet, but when exposed in filth and nakedness, her most reckless devotees shrink back from her in disgust and horror. Vice, without her mask, is a spectacle too appalling for humanity. It exhibits the hideousness and breeze of the corruption of hell. If these reprobated works of fiction can startle the rich into a painful consciousness of the wants and agonies of the poor, and make them, in spite of all the conventional laws of society, acknowledge their kindred humanity, who shall say that their books have been written in vain? For my own part, I look upon these authors as heaven-inspired teachers, who have been commissioned by the great Father of souls to proclaim to the world the wrongs and sufferings of millions of his creatures, to plead their cause with unflinching integrity and with almost superhuman eloquence, demand for them the justice which the world has so long denied. These men are the benefactors of their species, to whom the whole human race owe a vast debt of gratitude." Since the publication of Oliver Twist and many other works of the same class, inquiries have been made by thinking and benevolent individuals into the condition of the destitute poor in great cities and manufacturing districts. These works brought to light 
deeds of darkness and scenes of oppression and cruelty scarcely to be credited in modern times and in Christian communities. The attention of the public was directed towards this miserable class of beings and its best sympathies enlisted in their behalf. It was called upon to assist in the liberation of these white slaves chained to the oar for life in the galleys of wealth and to recognize them as men and brethren. Then sprang up the ragged schools, the institutions for reclaiming the youthful vagrants of London and teaching the idle and profligate, the sublime morality of sobriety and industry. Persons who were unable to contribute money to these truly noble objects of charity were ready to assist in the capacity of Sunday school teachers and add their might in the great work of moral reform. In overpeopled countries like England and France, the evils arising out of extreme poverty could not be easily remedied, yet the help thus afforded by the rich contributed greatly in ameliorating the distress of thousands of the poorer classes. To the same source we may trace the mitigation of many severe laws. The punishment of death is no longer enforced, but in cases of great depravity. Mercy has stepped in and wiped the blood from the sword of justice. Hood's Song of the Shirt produced an almost electric effect upon the public mind. It was a bold, truthful appeal to the best feelings of humanity, and it found a response in every feeling heart. It laid bare the distress of a most deserving and oppressed portion of the female operatives of London, and the good it did is at this moment in active operation. Witness the hundreds of workwomen landed within the last twelve months on these shores who immediately found liberal employment. God's blessing upon thee, Thomas Hood, the effect produced by that work of divine charity of thine will be felt long after thou and thy heart-searching appeal have vanished into the oblivion of the past. But what matters it to thee if the song is forgotten by coming generations? It performed its mission of mercy on earth, and has opened for thee the gates of heaven. Such a work of fiction as The Caxton's refreshes and invigorates the mind by its perusal, and virtue becomes beautiful for its own sake. You love the gentle humanity of the single-hearted philosopher, the charming simplicity of his loving helpmate, and scarcely know which to admire the most, Catherine in her conjugal or maternal character, the noble but mistaking pride of the fine old veteran Roland, the real hero of the tale, or the excellent young man, his nephew, who reclaims the fallen son, and is not too perfect to be unnatural. As many fine moral lessons can be learned from this novel, as from most works written expressly for the instruction and improvement of mankind, and they lose nothing by the beautiful and attractive garb in which they are presented to the reader. Our blessed Lord himself did not disdain the use of allegory, which is truth conveyed to the hearer under a symbolic form. His admirable parables, each of which told a little history, were the most popular methods that could be adopted to instruct the lower classes, who, chiefly uneducated, 
required the illustration of a subject in order to understand it. Aesop, in his inimitable fables, portrayed through his animals the various passions and vices of men, admirably adapting them to the characters he meant to satirize, and the abuses he endeavored through this medium to reform. These beautiful fictions have done much to throw disgrace upon roguery, selfishness, cruelty, avarice, and injustice, and to exalt patience, fidelity, mercy, and generosity, even among Christians who were blessed with a higher moral code than that enjoyed by the wise pagan, and they will continue to be read and admired as long as the art of printing exists to render them immortal. Every good work of fiction is a step towards the mental improvement of mankind, and to every such writer we say Godspeed. THE EARTHQUAKE Hark! Heard ye not a sound? Aye, tis the sullen roar of billows breaking on the shore. Hush! Tis beneath the ground, that hollow rending shock makes the tall mountains rock, the solid earth doth like a drunkard reel. Pale nature holds her breath, her tribes are mute as death, in silent dread the coming doom they feel. Ah, God have mercy, hark those dismal cries, man knows his danger now, and veils in dust his brow. Beneath the yawning earth, above the lurid skies, mortal, behold the toil and boast of years, in one brief moment to oblivion hurled. So shall it be, when this vain, guilty world, of woe and sad necessity and tears, sinks at the awful mandate of its Lord, as erst it rose to being at his word. End of chapter 14